Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! Hear these words now from the book that we love. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will tell you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of a man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. Lord, we come in all sorts of states, uh, mentally and emotionally, but God, we are here. And we pray that you would meet with us. We pray that your spirit would be felt, that your spirit would be present. We pray uh, for his work of illumination. Uh, Would you, Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, each individually? Would you make these words of your scriptures, the words, Lord, that you've put in my heart to speak, would they uh, penetrate and and do uh, what you have sent them out to do? So we pray and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Like many of you, I'm sure, Christmas music has been playing uh, basically nonstop in our house and our family since Thanksgiving. We're pretty committed, uh, no Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving people, but then it's like full bore, like all the way through through Christmas. Um, so a lot of Christmas music has been playing. We've started watching a couple of holiday movies, Christmas movies, um, and as well just watching uh, TV, sports, World Cup, whatever. You see the commercials, a lot of Christmas commercials that are all on television. And one of the things that I've noticed this year, it stuck out to me more this year than in previous years, I don't necessarily know the reason for that, but it has, is that the primary emotion in almost every single one of these songs, movies, commercials related to Christmas, the primary emotion is happiness. Happiness. Have you noticed that? Do you see that? It's a lot of joy. It's a lot of smiles. 
And there's this cultural expectation for this time of year to be one full of joy, full of glad tidings, full of good cheer. Think about how we even greet each other during the month of Christmas. We say, Merry Christmas, or we say, Happy Holidays. There's that expectation. And in this season, we're told both explicitly and implicitly that we should be happy. We should be joyful people. We should have childlike delight and wonder. But here's the reality. Many of us may not feel that way. There's this expectation. We hear that. We see that. But it doesn't resonate with us. It doesn't connect with us. In fact, research has shown that happiness among Americans has actually been declining in general since about the 1990s. And according to a University of Chicago poll that came out in June 2020, so just a few months after the COVID pandemic began, Americans were the unhappiest ever since the data had begun to be recorded in 1972. And similarly, later that year, there was a Gallup poll released. It's an annual poll that Gallup does. But, and the one from December 2020 saw a significant drop in the number of individuals who rated their mental health as either, as either excellent or good compared to 2019, compared to previous years. And so both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, if you can call where we are post-pandemic, I still don't know exactly how to explain where we are in this whole thing. It's a fact that we're not as happy as we used to be, that we are joyful that joyfully we are statistically as a country less than we have been in other periods of our history, even our recent history. And this is the third Sunday of Advent, which has already been mentioned a couple times. The pink candle is lit over here to my left, your right. It represents joy. But based on what I've just said, I imagine that many of you in the room don't feel joyful like that pink candle, that your internal world doesn't quite match that expectation or that hope. And there may be some of you that don't feel joyful, specifically here sitting in the pew today, this morning, because you don't want to actually be in this room. Maybe your parent has dragged you here against your will. Maybe a friend has convinced you to show up at this church building and you don't know why you're here. You don't really want to be here. If that is you, welcome. Glad you're here. But maybe for some of you, there may not be much holiday cheer in your hearts for more serious reasons, for, more, uh, for, for, for deeper reasons, much more serious reasons due to circumstances in your life. And to be candid, even for myself, this Advent season, I am not feeling wholly happy as maybe I ought or as the culture tells me I should. As many of you know, this will be the first Christmas for me without my dad. Uh, who passed away suddenly in September. Uh, and as Christmas gets closer, there is a part of me stirring that just doesn't know what it's going to feel like to be there in my mom's house with his chair empty. And there's a part of me that wants to say, hey, just embrace your joylessness. Just embrace the unhappiness that you feel, right? There's a song, could be an anthem, have a blue Christmas. Let's just do that. Let's just embrace it. But there's one thing that I can't get away from, and I can't recommend that, and that's because the scriptures command us, they tell us as God's people, as followers of Jesus, in many places, to be joyful, to rejoice, to be happy people. For example, and maybe most famously, the Apostle Paul in a couple places in his letters, Philippians 4 says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Apostle Paul again, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Rejoice. So what do we do? It's third Sunday of Advent, pink candle is lit, the theme of joy. What do we do if we're not feeling very joyful, if we're not feeling very festive this morning? How can we fight for that joy? How can we recover that joy in an attempt not to end the year on a weary note, on a melancholy note? And I think this passage, which is a little bit of a strange passage, certainly not one I've ever preached on before. Maybe it's one you've never read or heard before. What does this passage say to us? I I think this passage actually does offer a very simple but a profound and powerful answer to this question. And so from here, I want to talk in two parts. First, God leads his people into the wilderness. And second, God reminds his people of his word. So God leads his people into the wilderness, and God reminds his people of his word. Wilderness and word. So first, God leads his people into the wilderness. There are not many, in my opinion, books of the Bible that, have, that are poorly named. Uh, this Numbers is one of the books that I think is not named very well. It's true that there are two censuses recorded in the book where there are a lot of numbers in those chapters, to be sure. But this is not a book, not a part of scripture that's like a go-to if you're an accountant or somebody that loves spreadsheets or loves analytics. You wouldn't necessarily find this book satisfying. It's not full of numbers all the way through. The, tie, the Hebrew title for the book is actually In the Wilderness, which is a phrase that's in the first verse of the book in the wilderness. And I think that better describes the contents of this book. It better describes what the book is about. Because see, the people of God in this book, from beginning to end, are wandering around in the desert. They're stuck between Egypt. They're stuck between the Exodus, this monumental redemption of God, where he goes and he rescues his people from slavery from the Egyptians. They're in between that and the promised land, this place this land that God has uh, promised to give to their ancestors, where he said, I will settle you there. I will prosper you there. They're in between these two things. They're in between Egypt and the promised land. They're in between the exodus and this finding of a place to call home. And specifically here in our passage this morning, it's not listed specifically, because again, I trimmed the verses down a little bit. It was tough to find a place to start and end a little bit. But they're in a desert place just across from the Jordan River, across from the city of Jericho called the Plains of Moab, this desert place. But I would argue that they're not only in a literal wilderness, the people of God here in this passage, they're not only in a literal desert, but they are figuratively in one as well. They, all through this book up to this point in the book of Numbers, they are in a cyclical pattern of rebellion where they continue to grumble and argue and fight against God and try to go back to Egypt. And by the time we get to our passage, disobedience and death are rampant through the community, even among the leadership. In the chapters just leading up to the ones that that I just read from, Miriam, Moses' wife, the first lady of Israel, so to speak, she has died. Moses, right after that, he disobeys God directly. In chapter 20, there's a really interesting passage that parallels a story from earlier in the wilderness wanderings where the people are grumbling about being in the desert. Hey, there's no food. Hey, there's no water. 
legitimate concerns, but they are grumbling, and Moses goes to God and says, hey, what should I do? How can I provide for these people? And God says, hey, go to this rock and speak to the rock, and water will flow from it. And then Moses, for reasons that we don't know of, maybe it was because of his frustration as a leader with the people who continued to grumble. Maybe it was because of some arrogance, because he's seen this miracle done before. But he takes the staff in his hand, and he strikes the rock. He hits the rock to make the water flow from it. And God, even though he still provides for his people, he then tells Moses, hey, that was not a good choice. And therefore, you're not going to enter the promised land. You are also going to die in the wilderness and not go in, not lead my people in. So we've seen Moses disobey. And speaking of death, also immediately after that episode in chapter 20, we see Aaron, who's the, the co-leader with Moses. He dies. So things are in shambles. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Hopefully that's coming across. Things are in shambles. They are in the wilderness, not just literally, but also in a figurative way. Leadership is failing. It's passing away. Many men and women from the generation that came out of Egypt, that experienced firsthand the exodus, they also have died in the desert because of their disobedience and idolatry and lack of faith in God. Things are pretty bleak, pretty grim. And I would imagine... There wasn't a lot of happiness in the camp of Israel, not a lot of joy as they were in the desert. And this image of being in the wilderness is a powerful metaphor. It's one that people throughout the centuries, ancient and modern, have used uh, to describe situations that they are in, situations that are hard. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, I would argue that all of us probably in some ways are in the wilderness of some sort. Again, maybe not literally here this morning, but figuratively. Australian pastor Mark Sayers, who Jim actually referenced last week in a different way, which is funny, in his recently released book, A Non-Anxious Presence, he introduces this concept of a gray zone. And I won't get into all the details of it, partially because I'm not a sociologist and partially because I don't fully understand everything he's saying. He seems very, very smart. But I encourage you to, to Google it or listen to, he's on several podcasts where he talks about it. But he talks about this gray zone, and it's this in-between space, this in-between place. It's, it's a space and time between an old thing and a new thing. And what he talks about a lot, and especially on this one podcast I listened to where he was getting into it, is he talks about how our culture is in a gray zone where it's moving from a time where things were centralized, where institutions were trusted and held the power, or maybe select individuals held all the power, to a situation where uh, we're being decentralized, where power is being distributed more broadly, and instead of power coming from the top down, people are organizing into groups and tribes, whether online or physically, and they're able to exert power in, in remarkable ways working together, and, and power and change is coming from the ground up. But we're in the middle. There's this weird place where both things seem to be there, but neither of them fully. It's in flux. And Sayers, Mark Sayers writes about this. Gray zones exist in the overlap of two eras— they contain the influence of both, the passing and the forming era. And here's what I want you to hear. And this makes gray zones confusing and contradictory. And what does that mean? Well, it means that because we're stuck in the middle, it can be a hard place to live. Much like 
Israel in the wilderness, in between Egypt, in between the promised land. It's difficult to live there. It's confusing. It feels chaotic. It can feel unstable. It produces all kinds of fear and uncertainty, anxiety within us. And so I think if I understand Mark Sayre's argument correctly, all of us are in a cultural wilderness of some ways, this gray zone. But I would say many of us as well are probably also in a number of other wilderness experiences, whether that's spiritually or relationally or emotionally or mentally or physically. Maybe you're experiencing some, time, some kind of transition in your life. Many of us in, in the room as I meet with you, are in between these weird transitions with life stages. So maybe you're starting at a new school, or maybe you have new friends, or maybe you have a new baby, which pushes you into a new life stage, or maybe your kids are in school now, which pushes you into a new life stage, or maybe your kids are now gone, and you're an empty nester, and that's a new life stage, and you're having grandkids, and that's a new life stage. There's all these moments of transition related to life stages. Or maybe it relates to a new job or transition in your role. Maybe it's a new house, a move to a new community, transition. Those can be wilderness experiences. It's possible also that you're experiencing some kind of testing, which also can lead to a wilderness experience, whether it's chronic or recurring physical or mental health, financial insecurity, relational struggles, or maybe it's just spiritual dryness. You're here the third Sunday of Advent. You're going through the Advent devotional, but you're just not feeling it. It's just not there. You're just not connecting. And there's a spiritual dryness. And that's the gray zone. That's the wilderness. What's interesting is that Israel is not in the wilderness by mistake. God led them there. He led them out of Egypt. He led them into the wilderness on purpose. And I believe also in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand, God also is allowing us corporately and individually, or maybe both, to experience wilderness now. And that sounds like bad news. That's not fun. It's confusing. It's hard. But there is good news. And the good news is that God, for his people, Israel, in the wilderness, he does not leave them there alone. And he has not left us alone and will not leave us alone either. See, God delights all throughout the scriptures to meet people in the wilderness. He seems to use the desert in a special way, this place of transition and testing that's hard. God also uses to bring about transformation. And he loves to turn mourning into dancing. He loves to turn tears into joy. And so God, both then and now, he leads people into the wilderness. But second— God reminds his people of his word. Before we look in depth here in just a moment at this uh, oracle, this prophecy of Balaam, this character, let's chat just for a minute longer uh, about what's going on in Numbers 24. I've given you a little bit of that going prior to this, but all the way back in chapter 21 is when we're kind of introduced to these characters, Balaam and Balak. And so I want to explain that just for a moment before we look back at the oracle, the prophecy itself. So the Israelites, again, things are not in great shape. There's one little glimmer of hope that happens just before these chapters where there's a little bit of military success that happens against the Amorites, which were a a people group that was just south of where they're currently camping in the plains of Moab. But now they come to Moab, and Balak, who is the king of Moab, 
sees these people coming, sees them now encamped upon his doorstep after they just were able to overcome the kings just to the south of him, his neighbors. And he's getting a little nervous. And so he devises a plan. And this is Numbers 22, 2 to 6. I want to read here briefly that describes the setting. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will eat us up all around us as the ox eats up the grass from the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the Euphrates River in the land of the sons of his people, to call for him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they have covered the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed." And so we see just a couple chapters before our text that Balak, this king of Moab, hires this guy, Balaam. We don't know a lot about him. This is the only part in the Bible where we're introduced to him. But he is some kind of super prophet. He has this international fame, this international reputation as a prophet, as, as a sorcerer. He's, he's an expert in divination where he can discern things and give these oracles that come true. And so beginning back in chapter 23, he comes, and there's a series of three oracles, three prophecies in a row, where Balaam, instead of cursing God's people, he blesses God's people. And they all follow the same pattern, which is really interesting, that there's these altars that are built up on a high place overlooking where the people of Israel were encamped, some kind of mountain or a ridge. There's these altars built, bulls and rams are sacrificed, and then Balaam goes and he, he looks at the sacrifices and inquires of God what he should say. God gives him words to speak. Balaam goes back and in the presence of Balak speaks words of blessing rather than words of curse over the Israelites. And Balak, the king who's paying this guy, is unsurprisingly angry every time that he does this. Now, one of the questions that comes up in this passage and, and, and with, with Balaam is the question of whether or not he was a true follower of God. I don't, I don't think it affects our passage too much, whether he was or wasn't. I would say he probably is not, simply because his profession is not really acceptable in the law of Moses to do the things that he is doing, not to mention the fact that he's willing to be paid for it. It's a little bit of a no-no in the law of Moses. And so I don't think he's a true follower of God, but I think that's besides the point in many ways. What's striking is that God is choosing to use this guy, this unbelieving, in my opinion, divination expert. He's using him to bless his people. And scripture seems to indicate that God loves to do things like this all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. God uses unusual messengers and unusual means to communicate truth to his people. See, Moses himself spent some time in the wilderness before he went back to Egypt to rescue the people of God. And how did God speak to him? Through a burning bush. That's pretty unusual. There's a prophet named Elijah who later will be in the wilderness and running. And God speaks to him through a whispering voice that comes on the wind. 
And we even see with Balaam a few chapters prior to where we are that while he is traveling from his home in Mesopotamia to get to his employer, Balak, he's having some issues and God ends up speaking to him through his own donkey that he is riding. That's pretty unusual. This is a pattern of God. And God shows that in the history of Israel, he can speak to his people however and through whomever he wishes. And in these three discourses of Balaam prior to our passage, God doesn't just speak generic words of truth or generic words of blessing. But what he does is he reiterates specifically his covenant promises. These promises that he's been communicating for centuries to his people, beginning with Abraham. Things like, hey, I am your God. You are my people. We will have a special relationship. He promises to make them as numerous as the dust on the earth. He promises to settle them and prosper them in a promised land. And these are promises that actually we've been preaching on and talking about here at Liberty Church Collinswood over the course of this ministry year. They go back to the early and middle chapters of Genesis. When we meet Abram, who becomes Abraham. But then we get to our passage. I know that was a lot of setup. Sometimes there's got to be a long intro to get to where you got to be. We come to our passage, and something interesting happens. That third oracle cycle, that third prophecy cycle that ends with the king being upset, I included those verses at the beginning of our scripture reading. That's the end of that cycle. Balak is furious. And this time, instead of saying, hey, let's try again, he says, you know what? Just go away. Like, I'm done with this. I'm not going to pay you anyway. Please go away. But then Balaam, this is, and the cycle breaks here, the repetition breaks. Without going into the ritual of the previous times, he gives an unprompted, unasked for discourse, a prophecy. The Spirit of God stirs up within him. And he speaks to Balak. It's almost as if Balak is kicking him out. And as Balaam is on his way out the door, he says, I've got one more for you, just for good measure. And he gives them one more prophecy prompted by the Spirit of God. And this fourth oracle, this fourth prophecy in our passage today is truly special. It's the climax in many way of the other three where he's been reiterating and reaffirming these promises. But here he reaffirms a promise that occurs prior to here. Jim actually preached on one of them last week. But it's much more rare than those other promises. And he brings it up here, verses 17 to 19, that a king will arise out of Israel. I see him, but not now. I look at him, but not near. A star shall appear from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Balaam reminds the people that a king will one day come and will conquer the neighboring countries. And he's saying this in front of Balak and includes Balak's own people, which is pretty bold. But the scriptures tell us that this prediction actually is fulfilled literally in part 300 years later in the reign of King David. King David, when he becomes king over Israel, he does rule over this territory that Balaam specifically says here in this prophecy, and, and the nation rules those areas, and King David fulfills this. However, both traditional Jewish and Christian interpreters have always throughout history seen that there has to be a greater and a more full realization of this text, of this prophecy, that David fulfills it, but maybe not all the way. 
And Balak, even in the words he says, he hints at that. Verse 14, in, in the latter days, he says, let me tell you what will happen. That's not just 300 years in the future, but way in the future, in the far distant future. He says that one day, not just a king, but the king will come, who we know as Jewish and Christian interpreters would say is the Messiah. That's who Balaam is truly speaking of here. And that better king, we believe as Christians, not only will come, but has come. Jesus of Nazareth, born in a feeding trough in a barn to a virgin mother. But how was his birth announced? How was it displayed? How did the heavens declare that this had happened? There was a star, a star over Bethlehem. The Gospel of Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, and only the second chapter of that book, these wise men come to Herod, and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And then at the very end of the Bible, the end of the New Testament, Revelation, and in fact, the last chapter of the whole Bible, the last chapter of the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. This star that was prophesied in the oracle, it has come in the person of Jesus. And see, Balaam, he gives this prophecy in the wilderness of Moab, and it is fulfilled in Jesus. In his first advent, Jesus came to defeat sin, death, and the devil. He comes to secure redemption and salvation and freedom for his people, to bring, using the words of the angels and shepherds, he comes to bring good news of great joy. God's gracious promise of a future Messiah comes through the mouth of an unworthy man to an unworthy people struggling in the wilderness. But he reiterates his promises to them. He reminds them that he has not given up on them, that he is still their God. They are still his people. He is still working on their behalf to bless them. He will still be faithful to them in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. Jim's often said over the years that when we encounter hard things like suffering or grief, it can make us either, either bitter or beautiful. And I've always hung on to that. I think that's true. And I believe the wilderness experiences that we have in our life are the same. That we can come out of them with either more intimacy with God, more like Jesus, more joyful, or we can come out of these wilderness experiences more cynical and more hopeless, and more joyless. And if you're someone who feels like you're in the midst of a wilderness experience this morning, which, again, I believe is probably all of us in some way, through some period of transition or testing, my exhortation to you today is to put yourself in the way of God's Word. Increase the interaction that you have with the Scriptures in whatever ways you can. That's how God met his people in the wilderness, is that he reminded them of his word. And we need that word also. Get in the way of God's word. In the Reformed tradition, we use a phrase sometimes called the ordinary means of grace. And it's this idea that things like preaching and prayer and the sacraments are the ways, the means by which God normally seems to interact and work in the life of his people to encourage them, to build them up, to make them more like Jesus. And so what I would say is make sure that you are 
participating in and being exposed to those means of grace regularly. I believe that we can find joy when we hear God's word, when we're in the way of God's word. And Jesus himself actually says this to his disciples in John chapter 15, right before he goes to the cross, his final discourse with the 12. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus wants to give us joy and we experience that joy when we hear his word. And so get in the way of God's word, however that needs to happen in your life. I mentioned some research at the beginning of the sermon. I want to go back to that for just a minute because I think this is interesting. And there was a, a 2006, so, you know, it's kind of old now. Uh, now that I think about it, it's when I graduated high school. So that's interesting. 2006, people, that makes some of you feel really old and some of you feel really young. So I apologize, actually, for saying that. 2006 Pew study found that people who attend religious services uh, weekly or more often describe themselves as very happy about 43% of the time. While those who attend monthly or less, only 31% of those people say they are very happy. And then those who attend seldom or never, only 26% say they are very happy. And that was backed up even in that Gallup poll in 2020. So now we're coming a little bit newer here. In 2020, that Gallup poll that I mentioned already, the only subgroup in the entire poll that they found where there was an increase in the number of individuals who rated their mental health as excellent in, in the end of 2020 compared to the end of 2019, the only group where there was an increase was those who said they attended religious services weekly. That's fascinating. That doesn't prove everything, but I find that really interesting. People who were choosing to get in the way of the scriptures, to hear God's word, to be reminded of his promises on at least a weekly basis, seem to be more happy, more joyful people. You might hear me saying up here, and I am kind of, read your Bible, go to church, attend worship services. I am saying those things, and I realize that's not revolutionary, and that might not have been what you thought you were going to hear here this morning. It's not super novel. I did not come up with this myself, right? This is very basic. But when I read this passage and when I think about this passage and think about where we are, I can't get away from the fact that that's what we need. If we're in the wilderness, we need God's word spoken to us, his blessing spoken over us in some way. It just seems to be the way God works. It just seems to be the way that he has chosen to generate joy in us. It's how he did it through a Mesopotamian divination expert over his people on the plains of Moab. He reminds them of his gracious promises. He reminds them of his faithfulness. He reminds them of his love, and we need to hear those same things as well. I want to say a couple more quick things about joy, and then I'm going to wrap up here. It's not just that when we're in the wilderness that we can find joy, like there's the ability to find joy in the wilderness. I actually think in some strange, mysterious way, the wilderness is actually necessary to cultivate really true, deep joy. There's an author that I read this week, and he wrote this. The difference between shallow happiness and a deep, sustaining joy is sorrow. Happiness lives where sorrow is not. 
When sorrow arrives, happiness dies. It can't stand pain. Joy, on the other hand, rises from sorrow and therefore can withstand all grief. Joy, by the grace of God, is the transfiguration of suffering into endurance and of endurance into character and of character into hope. And the hope that has become our joy does not, as happiness must, for those who depend on it, it does not disappoint us. In other words, what he is saying is that joy is almost like a phoenix. It rises from the ashes of wilderness experience. And so if you're someone who feels like you're in the gray zone, you're in the wilderness, take courage because I think you're exactly where you need to be to find joy, for joy to be cultivated in you by God's grace. God leads his people into the desert. He leads his people into the wilderness so that he can speak these words over him, so that he can work this joy in them. And it doesn't just make us more joyful, these wilderness experiences, when we walk through them well by God's grace. It also makes us more resilient followers of Jesus on the other side for the future, for the next time we find ourselves in a desert place, the next time we find ourselves in a wilderness. Another commentator, he said this, According to the Bible, joy is not an accessory to the Christian life, a perk for shiny saints who can turn their frowns upside down. No, rather, joy is tenacious. It fights. It grips the promises of God and won't let go. And joy is not a mere good mood. It is a ballast in our boats, an anchor in our storms, an immovable rock to stand on when the waves of life threaten to flatten us. Both of those quotes are in the reflection quotes in the front of your worship folder, by the way. It makes us more resilient as followers of Jesus. Liberty Church Collingswood, rest in Jesus. Rest in the promises of God that he is with you and for you, that he will protect you and provide for you, that the person of Jesus, the Messiah, he has come for you and he will come again for you. Rest in those promises. Find ways to get in the way of God's word, the means of grace, to be reminded of those blessings, to hear those things. Let them wash over you. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>